Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first ever episode of Project 259. I'm your host, Dominic Schleter, and Project 259 is my pursuit and journey and documenting my buildup of trying to break the three-hour barrier in the marathon in my first ever marathon, which will be the 2023 Columbus Marathon, which will take place October 15th, 2023, so just under 10 weeks away. Along me in this journey is my coach, Coach Alex Osberg. For those who aren't familiar with Alex, he ran for Stanford University and then the University of North Carolina, where he was a multi-time All-American. I think he holds PRs of 350 in the mile, 1318 in the 5K, uh, and he also has a fast 10K as well. So he's more than qualified to coach me in this journey. Today's episode is very much introductory. We kind of just kick things off, light discussion, and we also get into a lot of subjects relating to training, how heat will affect things as I live in Austin, um, how we're preparing for a marathon, what makes a marathon unique, all sorts of different topics and things discussed in the first ever episode. I'm so excited to kick this thing off and really show you guys and document uh, what will be my hopefully first marathon and hopefully in under three hours. I'm quite frankly have no clue how this will go, but that's what makes it exciting. And uh, if you guys knew I would break three hours and if I knew I'd break three hours, it wouldn't be exciting. So the fact that there's some doubt and some uh, some who knows how it will go type thing uh, makes it all the more exciting. One quick note, if you have not already done so, I would greatly appreciate you giving us a follow, a five-star review, and sharing today's episode with a friend who you think will benefit from it. And then one final note, this series is presented by Final Surge, a platform that Alex and I are using to create our training and really maximize my training and preparation leading into this sub three hour marathon attempt. You guys can scroll down in the show notes for links to all things Final Surge if you guys want to check it out yourselves. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Alex Osberg, welcome to episode one of Project 259. How are you doing today? Dominic, I am doing very well. I am really excited about this project. And when you pitched this idea to me a few weeks ago now, uh, I got really excited about the concept and the potential that we have to, you know, not only have an impact on your training, but to share this project with your whole audience that I know is anxiously awaiting a big announcement as to what you've got cooking. <laughs> well, the announcement is here. So so basically to, to give the lowdown, I mean, I could start way back in the day, but you know, I've have the most generic runner story ever. Ran throughout middle school. I started running when I was five, ran in high school. And as people know, I'm not going to college. So it's kind of this unique period where like I could have run in college, uh, potentially D1 at slower schools or for sure D2 or D3. But because I'm going all in on the podcast game, there's no uh, you know podcast university where you can also run. So for me, it was like, okay, how can I challenge myself in a new way? And uh, another generic thing that a lot of people do is they run marathons, right? That's like the thing you do when you're done with competitive, competitive distance running. So within that, I was like, okay, I want to run a marathon, but I want to challenge myself more than just running the distance because I think most people could just go out with their Garmin and run 26.2 miles if they slog it slow enough, right? So for me, I was like, okay, I think the the mark is going to be sub three because it qualifies me for the Boston Marathon. And also it kind of lines up well where I think I can do it, but I'm not quite sure if I can. And that's like the perfect balance with a goal. So that's kind of where the idea came from of wanting to challenge myself in a new endeavor in this kind of new chapter of my running journey. And uh, it's a privilege to, to call you a coach. And it's quite funny because, uh, well, we can get into that later down the road, but I have some funny stories with coaches throughout my upbringing in the sport. And I've really never had like structured coaching. So I'm excited to do this with you. Yeah, it's 
funny you should mention that because if you go way back to 2019 when we first started communicating, I remember you sent over, I think, a very rough outline of your training plan that you had written completely from scratch and you had cobbled together all of these resources from probably what Steve Magnus and Jay Johnson and everyone had written. And it was actually a pretty like coherent and, and well thought out plan. And I think you asked me at the time, it's like, you had made some mention of, hey, do you think you could kind of do some coaching? And I kind of drew a line and I was like, listen, I'd love to like kind of consult with you on the project and, and help guide your training. But I think there's a missed opportunity. And I don't know if I could really do it to my fullest potential if you're in Ohio and I'm in California. And it's kind of this full circle moment because as we've continued to communicate and as the technology has gotten so much better in the past three or four years, I think we found a really cool way to go about doing this. You want to talk about how we're kind of going to be incorporating the platform of, of Final Surge. And, and you know, I could talk about how that changed my mind as to think that, you know what, this is a project that's actually possible, even though we're not in the same state. Absolutely. Well, first, I do want to share the the, the story of coaches. I don't know what it was in within me to kind of be stubborn all my life, but just growing up in middle school, like, and I don't, when I say this, I don't think middle school coaches should be very structured. I think at that age, this could be a whole nother podcast, as you know, Alex, in our, you know, long ranging conversations. But I think at that age, you should just fall in love with the sport and not worry too much about structured training. But for me, I was worried about structured training and I was annoyed that the coaches were like, you know, making us run half a mile and then, you know, play in hide and go seek. And then we get our popsicle. I'm like, I want to win championships. Like I want to train, you know, hard. So I would really never do the training that was prescribed in middle school. And it even got to the point where in eighth grade, that track coach, he really thought that distance runners should exclusively train like sprinters. I'm not sure where he got it from or what book he read, but I, Alex, I did not show up to a single practice my eighth grade track season, but because I was the fastest kid on the team, he just, I guess, let me do it. I would only show up to meets. <laughs> so I always kind of had this like stubborn attitude. And then in high school, it was a very collaborative relationship with my coach where he was new. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Steve. I gave him Steve's book and I would just basically tell him what I was doing and I would do it. Um, I would show up to practice. I'd do easy runs with the guys, but I would almost do all of my you know, training by myself or workouts. I would write it all by myself. So you're really like the first ever coach I've had, which is just quite hilarious to say at 18 years old, but it is very cool. And as you kind of alluded to, we've kind of figured out a good way to go about this because as amazing as, you know, iMessages these days, it would be a disaster if you were just texting me workouts, you know, over text message every day and whatnot. So in, you know, looking for a good platform that would help us execute this mission of running a marathon in under three hours, uh, I came across a platform that I had used and looked up to and they actually had a podcast back in the day called final surge and it's kind of like the one-stop shop for online training and coaching and athletes and the collaborative relationship between coach and athlete and uh, even though like we just kicked off this series it's been really cool to use it a little bit and see some of the different features and it's just cool kind of as you said with technology how far things have come where i'm like oh i didn't even realize you could do that or like i didn't realize that alex could you know, write it, workout, and then I could just download it from the platform to my Garmin and then go do that workout, like different things like that, that I think will make this a really cool platform to use in this training. And uh, I'm absolutely stoked to have them as the presenting sponsor of this series. Yeah. And I think when you say that, it brings something to mind for me, which is um, this idea between when you're constructing a training plan, because I think we should get into some of the details on, you know, our approach uh, and also what what the goals are here, the difference between planning versus reality, right? And I think one of the things that 
a lot of coaches do is they can have the prettiest looking Excel spreadsheet at the beginning of the season. But if that doesn't hold up with reality or there's a slight deviation in the plan, it all crumbles. Right. And I think one of the things that we're going to try and do here is have a really tight feedback loop such that the updates that I get and the feedback that I get on the workouts, uh, it's frictionless. It's seamless. It's all it's all in one place. And I think that's a really effective way to coach someone if you're going to be doing it in a remote way. Because the reality is that I think as a coach, there's a difference between, you know, if you set out and you have this great periodization scheme and you've got, you know, your general preparation phase, your preparation, your specificity phase, and then your taper, that's great. But that doesn't account for, Dominic, what if you fly home and you catch a bug on the plane and you have a virus for three days? Then that perfect workout I had planned for September 25th isn't going to happen. And I think when you anchor yourself to a plan that doesn't have some margin for error when it comes to, you know, how does this hold up against reality, then you kind of end up in trouble. So I think one of the big things we're going to try and emphasize throughout this podcast is how can we use some of these features? How can we optimize our own communication such that I'm giving you some workouts and that you're giving me really good feedback in real time so that we can adjust as needed? And I think that's one of the things we're going to try and do here is, you know, I have a a vision for the plan. And I think we've talked a lot about where you've been and where you want to go. And we should dive into some of those details. But I don't think I'm going to write the plan any more than probably a week or two in advance, because you just can't predict someone's response to training as much as we hope that we can. Like we're humans, we're not machines, right? And we're not programmed to have a certain level of adaptation after every workout. So I'm actually very curious to experiment with this a little bit and, and kind of come up with a good plan on on how we can optimize these feedback loops and come up with a really effective plan. I was actually curious there because there's a feature on Final Surge where the coach can, I mean, you could write all 10 weeks of training right now, but only have me, the athlete, see like one week in advance or even one day in advance. And a question I was actually going to ask you because I can only see into next week. I was curious. I was like, I wonder if he's written multiple weeks and just hid them from me. (laughs) But I guess it's good to know uh, you haven't done that. And a question in regards to like going back about like the online coaching thing and and getting into it and, and doing this project with me. Alex, we've done so many podcasts with each other, but just as a little refresher, as hard as this may be to do, can you give like a 60 second to two minute refresher on your running journey as well as your interest in coaching and just doing the series overall? Sure. So I ran in Connecticut for my high school career, got recruited to Stanford in 2015. That's the year that I started. I got redshirted my freshman year, so I took five years, finished up there with several All-American honors. I think I left Stanford with PRs of 13.42 in the 5K and 359 in the mile. I was overjoyed with the experience that I had and the successes that I had there. It was really a a life-changing experience and really fulfilling. Uh, Then the pandemic hit and everybody's life as we know it changed. Uh, I then decided that I was going to be starting a grad program and continue my NCAA eligibility at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, coincidentally, I also then followed my college coach who recruited me, Chris Meltenberg, who's still here at UNC today. And he was a big kind of the impetus for for coming out here. I think you actually just interviewed him and that podcast should be released somewhat shortly, probably this already one. released by the, by the time people hear this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I had my um, last two years of eligibility. And if, for those who are counting, yes, I actually got seven, seven years of NCAA eligibility through a medical redshirt, a COVID year, and an actual redshirt. Uh, so I left the NCAA as an old man relative to my peers 
but I, I think I, I got a great experience out of it. And then yeah, left UNC, I was able to run faster in every event and then have kept training post-collegiately. And I think my interest in coaching stemmed from my interest in what I was kind of studying in the classroom. I, I've been really interested in biology and psychology. And you know, when you bring those concepts together, basically science and practice, that's what coaching is, right? So I have, I'm fascinated with understanding the physiology and, you know, I, I've been doing some online coaching for the past year, mostly marathon focused. And then I've also been doing some kind of volunteer assistant work for UNC. So this was an exciting project for me. I know you very well. And I think you're excited to take on a new challenge. And I'm here to support you on that. You mentioned those experiences as an athlete and some of your different accomplishments. How do you think your experience as an athlete, and I don't want to make it sound like you're retired because you're not, you're still putting in the miles. Um, how do you think your experience as an athlete has influenced you as a coach and some of the lessons you will take from your athletic experience into this project? They've undoubtedly influenced my perspective on coaching. I think they, you know, I've developed some credibility purely based on how fast I can run, which honestly makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I think one of the problems that we have in the sport is that a lot of coaches just coach the, the way they trained and the way they were successful. And what that's ignoring is that, you know, everybody has a different profile on how they adapt to training, how they respond to training. And so, you know, one of the big traps that I try to avoid is, you know, what I would call autobiographical coaching, uh, basically like, a copy and paste from this is what got me good in 2015 to 2016. Therefore, Dominic, you're going to benefit from the same thing in 2023. And so one of my big um, motivating factors is to constantly test my ideas and always try to evolve as a coach such that like I never I'm always developing an approach and I'm actually trying to unlearn some of the things that I did as an athlete because there have been many times that I would tell people, do as I say, not as I have done. And I have made several mistakes. And I think a lot of those mistakes have informed the way that I approach it. But then I'm also, you know, I think I'm also held back in a lot of ways. And I'm constrained by the models of success that I've seen for myself. So uh, trying to broaden my perspective, uh, try to get exposure to a lot of different coaches and inputs, I think has helped me improve in this craft, which I hope to continue developing. The marathon, what intrigues you about that distance? And I feel like it is such a beast where, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this is just personal opinion and maybe it's because I'm doing it that I'm a little biased, but like, I feel like a, a 5K is a little more straightforward uh, versus a marathon, at least for a first timer. I feel like, you know, there are certain workouts, certain training, and it's the same for the marathon. Basically what I'm trying to say is I feel like the marathon is a very intriguing distance as we'll get into in this series. There are all sorts of different components from fueling and all sorts of different things that I feel like make it a different beast. So what intrigues you most about this distance? Well, going off of what I just said, it's actually something that I don't have a lot of personal experience in. So I'm forcing myself to learn a new skill set and to gather new knowledge to then apply it in this plan, which I've always interested in, you know, finding challenges that push me outside my comfort zone. And this is a perfect one to do that. I think I have a pretty good grasp on the physiology and kind of the training theory, but practically implementing it uh, is, is going to be a different challenge. So I'm excited for that. You know, I think marathon performance comes down to three major factors. And this is true of pretty much every athlete trying to do it at a high level. It's your VO2 max, uh, it's your lactate threshold, and it's your running economy. And what intrigues me about you is we know you have a pretty high VO2 max relative to your competitors trying to break three. 
you've run in the 16, 1643 for the 5k, right? 1621. And I, I think I, I think I told you on the phone, 1623. And then I looked it up and it was 1621. And I was like, <laughs> I'll take the extra two seconds. <laughs> take, take, take this. Yeah. Take the extra seconds. Um, and so if you were to extrapolate that to a marathon distance, if you were to take the Jack Daniels V dot calculations like that, that puts you well under three hours. So we know that you have the aerobic capacity and the engine to do it. But if it were just as easy as the aerobic capacity, then everyone would be running fast marathons, right? The crux of the issue is that the marathon really starts at 30K and it introduces a whole nother side to it, which is really the metabolic side, the fueling side, right? Because we're going to talk about this later, I'm sure, but you have this delicate interplay between fueling sources that you can use between fat and carbohydrate. And you only have so much stored carbohydrate in your liver and your muscles to last you not the whole marathon, right? So training in a way to try to change your fuel utilization uh, and to try and actually, it's, it's not only about the metabolic side of things, it's also about the durability side of things. In a 5K, the injury risk is fairly low. It's for most people, 20 to 30 minutes of running, which is feasible. Uh, the marathon also you know, demands a certain level of tissue and bone and muscle resilience and durability uh, that, you know, you need to get to mile 20 in one piece to be able to keep it together. Um, and you, you kind of accumulate a lot of damage over those miles, um, especially when you're running them pretty hard at race pace. So all of those factors together are things that are, are definitely intriguing to me. We'll get into my recent training here, but that is what intrigues me the most is that 650 pace does not seem hard. It's not hard, but 650 pace run for 26.2 miles you know that's it's like can i do it i don't know and that's what makes it interesting and exciting and for me like i'm sure a question i'll get a lot over this series as you know people listen to episodes or we get new listeners is like oh what's the most you've ever run i feel like that's a question most people get when they do a marathon because people want to know how close to the beast have you gotten and for me the most i've ever run is 14 i think i did 14 once going into my junior year of high school now, I think we'd be both be lying if we said 12 miles adding on to that is, is quite, quite a distance. And it also makes it quite interesting, the 650 pace per mile, which for those who aren't familiar is, I think, 259.59 pace. So basically, the, the pace I'll need to run to break three is 650 pace. It's very interesting and personal to me because in high school, I was a firm believer, at least within my own training system. In the summer, I felt I responded really well to faster long runs, and it got me really aerobically fit and strong. So because of that, normally once a week, I would do my long run around that pace roughly. So even that 14-mile long run, I want to say, was like 648, 649 pace. And if you go on my Strava throughout the years, you'll see a lot of those long runs at that pace. So it makes it more interesting for me because most of my long runs were at sub-three-hour pace, but... I just didn't know that I would be doing this challenge a few years later. So with all that being said, I think it's really interesting, the distance piece of it. That's why I'm doing a marathon rather than a half marathon. Like as cool as it would be to go after a half marathon at like 540 pace or 545 pace, it doesn't have that same feeling of like nerves and of doubt that the marathon does just because it's the marathon. I mean, the, the, the hallmark of any good goal, right, is something that you're not totally sure you can achieve. Right. And anything that's intriguing in, in the sport is a goal that is outside of the realm of what you know to be possible. And the fact that there's some uncharted territory here and the fact that maybe your chance of success is, I don't know, let's call it like 60, 40, 75, 25 in favor of you doing it. But there's still that like 
little bit of doubt in the back of your mind, like, yep, this is uncharted territory. I'm not sure. Um, and I think that would dissuade a lot of people from pursuing a goal that's a little bit scary. But I'd actually say that's probably the sweet spot right there. It's like, I know I, I think I can do it, but I'm not actually sure. And how am I going to go about doing that? That's the intriguing part. And as fans of the sport watching the the world marathon majors every year, I think we always see the people that, you know, their runs or workouts get floated around before you'll hear their pre-race press conferences. And it's like, oh, I'm in 207 shape, 208 shape. And, you know, their PRR is 209, 210, whatever it might be. But then inevitably, you know, they have some GI issue or they pull something. All the different factors that you mentioned earlier, I think only really start to present themselves at the marathon distance. Because in competitive running, outside of like a few US championship 15K, 20K, but those are kind of weird and people don't really pay attention to them. It's like the half marathon and then the marathon in terms of competitive running. And it's such a big jump. And with that jump, I feel like comes all sorts of new possibilities for failure i feel like with the 5k with the 10k like you're not even thinking of like the potential risk of injury mid-race or like fueling issue those just issues aren't there so i could actually show up on october 14th i could do my pre-race you know my strides etc i could call you and say you know the fitness is there there's a 99 percent chance i do this or like a hundred percent chance i'm in sub three hour shape i think we'll get to the point where i am for sure in sub three hour shape but again, it's another thing to do it on the day, specifically with the marathon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the scary things about the marathon is so much can go wrong. And, and it can go wrong pretty quickly, too. Whereas in a 10K or a 5K, if you're going through a rough patch, you know, the finish line's in sight. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. If you're going through a rough patch in a marathon, which you inevitably will, you may be staring down another 13, 14 miles which again is as long as you've ever run. So I mean, all, all of these things are, are, are a little bit, uh, a little bit terrifying to think about, but I think that also is encouraging because when we approach the plan, we say, okay, how can we protect ourselves from failure? Right? Like, can we identify the sources of failure, a potential failure, and then stop those things from happening? And so the obvious ones that we think of right off the bat would be injury, illness. Uh, and then I think like a fueling debacle. And, and so these are, and, and I think also you should throw in their equipment for those people who have really been following the, the major marathons closely. I believe it, this is probably five or six years ago, Elliot Kipchoge ran the Berlin marathon and the insoles of his shoes actually came out. Uh, so major like wardrobe malfunction there. Uh, I'm sure Nike was cringing when they saw that, but um, you know, making sure that the equipment works, making sure that you can actually run some of your, you know, key long runs in the shoes you're going to be racing in, making sure that you can find a way that you're carrying your gels such that you're not like chafing because of them. All of these little things, right? Like didn't Muhammad Ali say something like, it's not the mountain that you have to climb that you need to worry about. It's the pebble in your shoe that's really going to get to you or something along those lines. It's those small factors uh, that you need to think about. And you don't want to leave those things to chance. And I think we are very deliberately going to address all those factors throughout the next 10 weeks before race day on how can we protect this plan from failure. Sure, we can't reach a degree of certainty that's 100%, but we can get as close as we can. What do you think will be the biggest roadblock in my way during these next 10 weeks? I think the biggest thing is just going to be building the volume in a way that's safe and sustainable. Um, I think you're coming off running somewhere between 30 and 45 miles per week, which I actually think is, is quite good for a, a starting point. But when I think about what we, where we need to go for a marathon is you can either 
work forwards or work backwards from the goal. Like, and if you were to work backwards, you'd say, okay, I have a marathon on October 15th. I want to hit like, you know, three 20 milers and a 16 and an 18 miler beforehand. We don't have the luxury of that much time right now, uh, which is fine. We're going to deal with the constraints that we have. Um, but we also need to work forward from where you're coming from. And I think it would be a good opportunity for you to kind of dive into where you are from your training. Because I think what we need to do now is build the capacities necessary, you know, and the durability necessary to make it uh, all the way to the, you know, 26.2 miles. And I think a big part of that will be, can we expose your body to progressively longer runs and see how you respond to that? And it's not just the long run. It's also about how the long run fits into the context of the week. You can go out and run 16 miles once. I'm sure you can. But can you actually recover from that in a way that makes that training sustainable? And so I think a big principle we're going to talk about throughout this process is sustainability, right? The goal of this training block is not, let's see how fast I can run in any one session. What's the longest I can run in any one bout? Rather, you need to think about, you know, what are the highest returns I can get on my investment over the longest period of time? And a lot of times, you know, you just need to think about sustainability here and, and, and honestly, moderation. So I think trying to incorporate those longer runs in the context of your training overall and the week overall is going to be is going to be a challenge for us to figure out. Diving into into recent training, what, what questions do you have for me that you think would help the listener better understand where I'm coming from and where we're headed with ten weeks to go? Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to define a training plan, um, and when I was kind of sitting down and starting to write this out, there's like a few questions that automatically come to mind. One is how much volume you're doing, right? And we've already answered that question. You're like, you've been between like 30 and 50 with a little bit of variation in there. Two is the intensity. Uh, so have you been doing any speed work whatsoever? You actually have. Um, and again, I'll let you go into more details if you'd like to elaborate. Three would be how long has your long run been up to this point? Because, you know, that's actually pretty predictive. Like if you've just been doing, you know, 20 miles a week, but you've never gone longer than seven miles in any one session, then jumping up to you know, 12 or 13 miles would be a huge step. Uh, and then lastly is, is like the density or the distribution of the week. How many days are you running? How many days are you taking off? And how many days are you doubling? So we had a phone call, it must've been about a week ago now, where I think I tried to sit down and ask all those questions. And then you can get into all the nitty gritty details, like what kind of surface are you training on? What shoes are you wearing? What's the terrain like? What's the temperature like? That's going to be a huge factor we have to consider. Um, and thankfully, I was, I was just texting you yesterday when I went into Final Surge. I went in and I plugged in the weather feature, which is this really nifty feature they've got where it just has like the highs. You can you can look at the hourly forecast or you can just look at like the average temperature throughout every day and it just pops right on the calendar. And I was like horrified to see that the average in Austin, Texas is not below 100 for anywhere in the near future. Like there is not a day below 100 We're 32 days straight of 100 degrees or more. Yeah. So th those are some of the factors that I think I initially thought about. And then I would love to also dive into like, you know, how do you feel about the training you're doing? There's there's the nuts and bolts of like what stress are we going to apply to the body in terms of the physiological stimulus? But then I think some of the questions I also asked you were, what workouts do you actually enjoy doing? What workouts give you confidence? And I think a lot of people fail to look at that factor and realize that there's an enormous effect of belief and buy-in in the plan, you know? And ideally you want... The, the, you want the athlete in the driver's seat, right? And then the coach should be in the passenger seat, just kind of giving guidance as they go. But an athlete, so like you need to feel ownership over this plan. You need to feel like this plan is well-researched. 
Um, it's it's going to be well executed. And I actually believe in every run that I'm doing. And I swear, even if you came up with the perfect physiological plan based on every marker that you could possibly imagine, lactate threshold, VO2 max, throw everything in there. But the athlete didn't believe in it, right? You didn't you didn't buy into it. I don't think you're going to adapt as well to it. And that's, we can spend a whole podcast looking at belief effects in psychology and the placebo effect and sham surgeries. And there's a lot <laughs> of things that would support that, uh, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. When you were talking there, the biggest takeaway for me and the biggest takeaway when looking at your training that you've written on Final Surge for this upcoming week is your training really isn't too different from what I've been doing outside of maybe the long run. I think the long run, which is not surprising given it's a marathon, is going to be the thing that will test me the most and the thing that will kind of give us the most feedback as to where we need to go and where we need to, to head. Obviously, 10 weeks isn't a whole lot of time and it's totally fine if we can't yeah, the purpose isn't to squeeze out every ounce of fitness. So I, I'm very, I don't know, it was comfortable to see that, oh, like, I don't really feel like I'm changing anything up per se. It's just, I'm shifting from a summer of just running consistently to now a little more intentional training. And that's where you came in. And that's where I felt comfortable, like, oh, you know, he's not rewriting the whole book. You know, I don't feel like I'm doing really anything new. And uh, that's obviously a freeing feeling to be like, oh, okay nothing really changes too much. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, it's funny, and we've had conversations about this. I think that training doesn't need to be all that complicated, but we, we complicate it unnecessarily sometimes. And I have the most exposure probably to the NCAA system and having interacted with a lot of athletes, getting to know a fair amount of coaches. And now that training is basically public via Strava and other platforms, uh, such that you could basically see what any team is doing across the whole country, you begin to realize that probably 80 to 90% of what all these teams are doing is basically identical. They're, they're all grounded in the same like fundamental principles, right? And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's like, okay, we don't need to be reinventing the wheel here. And we also need some degree of continuity from what you're doing before. I think the biggest risk factor for injury and distance running is sudden change in any direction, right? doing a whole lot more volume, a whole lot more intensity, adding on a lot more distance to any given run. And the reality is that in order to be successful for a training plan, the number one predictive factor there is how consistent can you be and how many, how few days can you miss throughout the plan? You know, they've done studies and total distance run in a training plan predicts up to, I think it's 59% of performance variability amongst world-class runners. And that's just the total volume of easy running. It's less predictive than VOG max workouts, lactate threshold workouts. It really is pretty clarifying when you realize the grind of just daily mileage and showing up and getting the job done and just checking the box is not all that exciting, but it actually works. Right. And I think marathon training really embodies the saying of like delayed gratification. Granted, all of distance running does, but I honestly think marathon training at face value is actually easier than other training I've done in the past. 5K training is doing like two hard track workouts or one really hard strength workout and a track workout in a week with a long run or a race. It's pretty hard. Like I feel like it's very hard, but again, marathon training, I feel like tests you in a different way where you're going farther, but you have to go a little slower to make it farther and you're doing it probably overall a little more volume. Um, so because of that, I think it's like 
it's harder in a unique way, uh, but it's also easier in a unique way. And it's kind of tapping into to different skills or challenges that an athlete might have, um, which I'm excited to, to kind of explore personally. W- one thing I do want to bring up, Alex, is kind of to, to my earlier point about not really having too much structured coaching in my upbringing. I could do this series all by myself, and I do think I could probably break three. I, I shared this with you on the phone. But something, Alex, as you know me all too well, that has crept in the way and I do think was the single biggest factor that held me back in high school was I coached myself based on emotion, right? So I would get the flu. I would be out for a week. This happened last summer. And instead of having a good progression back into training, a well thought through progression back into training off of sickness, I was like, let's get after it again. And I think I ran like 60 miles in six days. And it's like, of course, you're going to have a hip hiccup (laughs) after that. But because I was my quote unquote coach, I was coaching off of the emotion that I was feeling. And it's very hard. And that's why I think every athlete should really try to find some situation where they can get guidance of some sort if it's not a full coach, because I ruined seasons coaching myself off of emotion. I felt, okay, you didn't do too well in this race. Okay, kill the track workout to get the confidence that you feel you need going into the next one. So could you maybe speak to how important it is to have a coach and also the aspect I just shared of the different emotions and other things that athletes bring to the table that a coach is able to see through and properly still write the training plan without the athlete ruining themselves in the process. Exactly. And I think a lot of this really comes down to, can you have an objective perspective that's removed from the emotional turmoil of a workout of a race that can see the bigger picture and can zoom out a little bit. Cause as an athlete, you really ride the highs and the lows of, of a training program. It's, it's pretty unusual. And I'd say you're probably doing it wrong. If you feel great all the time, there should be some peaks and valleys, right? And if you're training hard and you're training deliberately hard and you're applying stress at the right time, there are days you should feel tired and you should be reassured this is normal. My training plan isn't falling apart because of it. This is a natural byproduct of pushing my body outside of its normal comfort zone. And you know, there's this funny saying that like a parent is only as happy as their least happy child. And I think you can apply a similar rule in running is that a distance runner is only as confident as their last good workout or their last <laughs> workout rather. Um, and it's so true. Totally. I think, I think one of the problems people run into is they either a, one of the biggest problems is they try to play catch up and they do too much too soon. And that probably, in my opinion, explains 80% of injuries, you know, forget about the shoes, forget about the surface, uh, forget about biomechanics. You probably got injured by doing too much too soon. And a coach is really good at saying, okay, here's where you were. Let's remove the emotion that's attached from it. And let's look at this objectively and then plan a natural progression coming back. Because the reality is most distance runners, it it selects for people who are type A, who are really driven, and they think that hard work can solve all problems. And paradoxically, one of the things that sometimes you need the most, even when you don't think you need it, is rest. And so being very strategic about where you apply stress and where you apply rest And the balance between those two things is something I think a coach can do a little bit more skillfully than an athlete who's riding those highs and lows and those confidence surges. And that's not something I don't think you need. I think it's helpful to do that in person, but I think we're going to come up with a really good communication system here where 
you know, I don't need some kind of black box algorithm from a wearable device to tell me how you felt that morning. We can we can use that to maybe inform our approach, like resting heart rate, heart rate variability, and we can have a whole conversation about the utility of wearables and distance running. But instead, I just want to know, like, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about training? Is anything bothering you? And we're going to stay on top of those details. You know, I think just asking yourself the question or having someone pose to you the question, how are you feeling about this training? Where is it going? All of those questions themselves. And if you really target them in the right way at the right time can be immensely beneficial. A really cool feature of Final Search that I've found neat is uh, the ability to leave a note or a message to you that you'll then get a push notification or email for. And uh, as my loyal Strava followers know over the years, I just write like diary posts on Strava. I got on Strava as like my personal training log. I I didn't think of my Strava as having followers. I just, again, it was like my personal training log. So I was going to say whatever I wanted to say. So throughout the years, I've always left detailed notes of how I felt X, Y, and Z. And it's actually quite beneficial looking back for me now, just in terms of like seeing what I was doing, seeing how I was feeling, and even like this summer or previous training blocks, seeing how I felt and responded to different things. So I'll say, Alex, prepare yourself for, for these uh, notes on every run, uh, which will actually probably make the, the series more interesting, but I'm very detailed. Uh, but I think that that's an, a neat feature of Final Surge. So expect uh, some push notifications uh, with big diary novels from yours truly. Alex, before we uh, wrap up today's conversation, there's so many different like topics and things I want to bring up. The marathon is such a big distance. I've mentioned it as a beast. That's just how I've heard it referred as. And I do think it's true that there are so many different things that I think can be discussed and I'd love to pick your brain on, but uh, I don't want to turn this into a five hour Joe Rogan podcast, but there is like at the forefront of my mind. So I'm asking myself, okay, what's the one subject I want to cover before we close out today's episode? For those that don't know, I live in Austin, Texas. And as you mentioned, that feature on Final Surge, turning on the weather, you uh, said you were horrified. (laughs) I think this would be really good. And there are different avenues underneath heat that we can explore. But I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up because it will play such a massive factor in this build. I think it's, it's decently easy to train hard when the conditions are good. But it's uh, it's something I've never experienced growing up in Ohio of like pretty brutal weather because even in the summers in Ohio, if you wake up 7, 8 a.m., yeah, it'll be humid, but like you can still get considerable work in. And Texas, you know, the low the other day was 79. And it's just like how much work, quality work can you actually get in? And I actually just visited the Midwest recently and like I wouldn't hold myself to this, but my easy run pace at the same effort was like 45 to 50 seconds faster in the Midwest. That sounds crazy, but I I mean, it's just the truth. It's a complete difference. Um, So your overall thoughts on the heat and how it will affect training, how it affects training, and uh, ultimately how it'll affect this project. Yeah, it's undoubtedly a factor. And I think it's actually very topical right now because when this gets released, we're still going to be in the heat of the summer for most people who are training, preparing for cross country, perhaps starting to get into the bulk of their marathon build like yourself. And it's one of those things where in my mind, the way I think about it, this is that when you prescribe a run and you do a run, there's the external load and the internal load. And let me dive into those topics and say what I mean by those things. The external load of a five mile run is the distance covered, right? You, you put in this many steps, you covered five miles in this amount of time, right? But the reality is that not all five-mile runs are created equal, certainly not in between individuals, um, but also not yourself today from where you were yesterday or yourself here in Austin, Texas versus where you are in Ohio. And the internal load of a run changes. 
So I think one thing that we do as a disservice is we assume that mileage is this measure that captures everything, whereas it really captures very little nuance. It just captures the total distance that you covered. But that alone says nothing about the intensity, the heart rate zones, the power zones, and we can go down that rabbit hole if you want to later, or rather the effort you expended because you're in a hot place, which you are right now. And so I think there's a lot of different ways to track internal load. One way would just be like perception of effort. And you could tell me probably pretty honestly right now, my perception of effort on a one to 10 scale in Austin, Texas is probably every run kind of turns into probably a five or a six. That's like moderately hard effort because that heat stress just gets, it builds throughout the run. It's hard to escape the heat stress for anything longer than an hour. It's, it's going to be a major factor. Anytime you, you dip into intensity, it's going to be a major factor. Uh, one of the things that drives this and it increases that internal load. And again, that internal load is how does the body respond to that five mile run, right? And you can look at that a, a very common way would be like perceived exertion or heart rate. And one of the ways that you can look at this is you can say, okay, you know, the internal load when you're in Austin, Texas is arbitrarily like you can multiply the distance times the RPE, right? So a six times a five mile run is like a, on, you know, a scale of units is like a 30. And then in Ohio, you multiply a five mile run by an RPE on a scale of one to 10 by three, you're at like a 15. So that's a very dramatic difference right there. And one of the things that drives this, this is what I was going to say earlier, is that the way that heat stress works is that when you're hot, your body tries to cool itself off, right? And what it does is it actually shunts a lot of your blood to the periphery of your body because the way that you you cool yourself off is you send your your hot blood to the surface of the skin and that's where that exchange happens right so that's where the sweating occurs that's where the phase change occurs right from where the the sweat kind of vaporizes off the body and, and in doing so when you send more blood away from your working muscles to your skin for cooling purposes your heart rate jumps up like crazy right so you'll probably notice like it just feels way harder to run in 80 degrees than it does in 60 degrees. And again, we can get into all the, the science of that later on, because I know this is going to be a factor, but short answer absolutely is going to matter. Uh, and we're going to have to adjust the training off of that. What scares me the most, again, this whole series and project, I'm going to be as open and honest as I can be. What scares me the most is the heat with the factor of running longer than I ever have before in training. And that'll be that'll make for some interesting uh, experiences and podcasts down the road. <laughs> um, so I think that'll be an interesting thing to tackle. But also, uh, I was just in the Midwest for like a week and I got in a workout and then a long run. Um, and the workout was I was pacing my friend Jacob Moon. He runs for the University of Xavier Big East School. He was doing four by two mile. And I basically did 95 percent of that workout. And uh, it's just I had no clue where my fitness was at all summer until I did that workout because it was literally the only day that I had a good metric to test myself, you know, and I was running, you know, 605 pace pretty comfortably. And a few weeks ago, I did a three mile tempo on the track here in Austin. And I definitely tried to keep the effort tempo level that I could have continued, but I think I went 616 and it was like some of the worst 616s <laughs> I've ever felt. So it's, it's something that I think both you and I will have to get good at is detachment from outcome and figuring out what work is just work and just like laying bricks, even if they're not sexy, none of the work in Texas is going to be good. And honestly, Alex, I don't think the stuff I'll do here will actually correlate to a sub three hour marathon. Uh, I'll be back for my brother's wedding. I'll get in some training there. It'll only be during that trip that I feel like we'll be able to actually 
see the fitness. Okay, what is the pace on your easy run now that we have an objective scale to measure it on? Okay, how does 650 pace actually feel? Because it is such a big difference. As I mentioned, the easy run pace in Ohio was like 45 to 50 seconds faster. I'm not holding myself to that, and I think it's bad to get caught up in you know, those metrics just run by field. That's how I go about it. But it's going to be interesting. I think it just, it, it gets me excited because it makes the project all the more interesting, <laughs> right? Yeah. Just the more variables you can throw out the wall. It's like, it does make it more interesting for the listener. So I will suffer yeah. willingly for the sake of the listener's entertainment, I guess. Yeah. W- one thing I just wanted to say there, which you made me think of is my old roommate, Stephen Fahey, uh, he ran for, for Stanford as well and then ran professionally for a couple of years. He has this ongoing joke on strava which is he he's now he, he lives in dallas texas and he says he says only i like know what the numbers mean and he's referencing some quote that mike smith said before uh it was like some cryptic language that mike smith said before like the nutty comb invitational he's like we train at altitude but like but we know what the numbers mean and so i always <laughs> get a good laugh out of that because it's like yeah you can't really draw a line between what you're doing here and what your marathon performance is going to be it's artificially like that whole relationship is ruined, right? That like correlation between pace and goal pace right now, it's totally out of whack. So I think one thing that we can do is rely a little bit more on effort. And as you can see, some of the workouts that I've programmed in, again, I'm not going to let you look more than two weeks in advance, Uh, (laughs) but uh, some of the workouts I'm programming in for the beginning are going to be more effort-based and fartlek-based because I think we attach a lot of meaning to how fast can I run a mile repeat but no one ever really gives you know a second thought to how much distance did I cover in two minutes. So I think using these tactics, and we can talk about this more in workout design, but using these tactics to like detach the meaning from the, the actual length of the rep and the pace and just say, hey, can I go off purely off effort here uh, is one way of kind of harnessing psychological momentum in otherwise a world where you might get really, really discouraged when you see what your actual pace is or how fast you're running reps. And that's why I think detachment from outcome is so good. It's just like, I trust in the training. I trust I'll line up in Columbus on October 15th as fit as I possibly could be given the circumstances. And you can't ask for anything more than that, right? So Alex, as we close out today's conversation, uh, again, I want to keep picking your brain, but I'll, I'll save that for episode two. Uh, a question I have for you, those who uh, know us and know our previous conversations, specifically the last time I had you on the, the podcast, you did something where you flipped a few subjects on their head. I won't get into detail. People can listen to that episode. It was fantastic. So I'm going to flip a concept on its head for you and maybe put you in a bit of an uncomfortable spot, although... We're friends, so it probably won't be uncomfortable. Um, The question I have for you is, what is the biggest reason I would fail this project? Yeah, and and that's a great point because like we're inverting the problem, right? And I I actually did give that some thought. I think the number one thing standing in the way for most people when they're training for a marathon is an injury, right? It's it's about you're applying a lot of load to the body, and if you're not strategic about how you apply that load and you go about the progression, it's very easy to kind of tiptoe over that razor's edge uh, and end up with something sore. Now, granted, I think injuries come in all different shapes and sizes. And, you know, uh, a sore Achilles is one thing, a stress fracture is another. And, you know, I remember Amy Craig, who now lives out here in, in Chapel Hill, she's an incredibly successful marathoner, Olympian, said that it's pretty normal throughout a marathon phase to have like two or three pseudo injuries that are kind of like niggles. Like you're just putting so much load on the body that you're going to, you know, the body's going to tell you that it's a little bit angry sometimes. And I think, 
you know, the way that you approach that and the way that you kind of navigate through that discomfort. And I think there's a great feature we'll talk about later on, on final search about how to quantify that and how to describe it will be really useful throughout this whole block. Cause I, I do expect that at some point something's going to be sore, you know, and that's a very healthy way. I think to look at a training plan, if you're finding your limits, something's going to be sore. And it's like, you know, 100% of injuries start with pain, but not 100% of pain when it pops up in, in training presents in a full blown injury. So it's like, how do you navigate that ambiguity there and that, that gray area? And that'll be something that we'll work on. And that's where, in my opinion, a coach comes in to help the athlete figure out those different feelings and emotions versus Dominic a year ago, who was like, oh, this hurts. Okay. Do the 10 mile tempo anyway. <laughs> and then uh, no wonder the Achilles is like blown up inflamed the next day. Right. <laughs> Instead of a coach just being like, dude, it's not that big of a deal. I'll take a day off, you know? So, uh, you know, you learn from your mistakes and, uh, that's something that I took away from the coach milk podcast. Uh, I'm forgetting the exact quote, but he was very specific about charting his progression. I made mistakes at Georgetown. I made mistakes at Columbia. Like he's just talking about always making mistakes, but if he wasn't like, you know, he wouldn't be growing. And I, and I love that mindset. One final thing for you, Alex, Maybe speak to the listener here uh, based on what you're doing with me in your training. I certainly see this on Final Surge with how you're planning training. We are going about this in a very sustainable way where we care way more about showing up on the start line healthy rather than going after 245 shaped, but then we have the upside of being in 245 shape or we have the downside of showing up to the start line with KT tape all over and not showing up to the start line <laughs> at all. So applying what we're doing with my training here to the listener, what would you say to the listener as they're approaching marathon season or probably for 80% of them cross country season in terms of training sustainably? I know not all athletes coach themselves, but even within a coach athlete relationship, the athlete controls how hard they're going on workouts, how hard they're going on easy runs, et cetera, et cetera. So could you maybe uh, close out today's episode with some uh, wisdom on sustainability and training with purpose and not overdoing things? Sure. I'll recycle an idea that I think I shared in one of the podcasts we had at some point in time. The way that I think about this, the mental model that I use is that I would so much rather train at 90 to 95% of my capacity even if I'm leaving a little bit of fitness on the table, then even try to attempt going at 105% of my capacity and ending up injured. Because the reality is, even if you're a little bit less fit, you're putting yourself on the line and you're giving yourself a shot. Whereas with 105%, you're not even getting to the line to begin with. So I don't think it's always useful to frame training as fear-based from trying to avoid injury. Right. Because I think, you know, you don't want fear to be your motivating factor in the way that you approach something. But it's worth considering what is the most sustainable way that we can approach this training block, not what is the, the highest, you know, the, the longest long run that I can do or the fastest long run that I can do. Rather, it's what's going to be something that we can execute consistently and sustainably and get us to the line on October 15th, feeling happy and healthy and motivated. And of course, there's a psychological component too. If you're burnt out and you've left all of that race energy, you've burned all those matches in your workouts and you're not even feeling motivated by the time the race rolls around, you probably made a miscalculation somewhere too. So I just say always err on the side of maybe leaving 5%, five 10% on the table because the downside to, to overstepping that line is, is so huge. It's, it's bottomless. So that's the way we're thinking about it but we're going to try and do this in a way that's motivating and not fear-based. Alex, episode one in the books. It was a pleasure. I'm looking forward to running it back a week from now on episode two. Appreciate you. Sounds good, Dominic. I'm looking forward to it as well.